Blog Talk Radio. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as tired as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Tell you built a time machine? Kind of a DeLorean? This is a stupid cancer show. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the hosts of the Stupid Cancer Show, Lisa Bernhard and Matthew Zachary. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Monday, October 18th, and welcome to Season 7 of the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adults with cancer. I'm Matthew Zachary, a 14-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. And I'm Lisa Bernhardt, 15-year young adult breast cancer survivor, and we are your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Well, get busy living because the Stupid Cancer Show is here to change the world one chemo infusion at a time. Tonight's show, Don't Start a Charity. Ironic, you say? Hmm. Joining us tonight will be Ken Berger, President and CEO of Charity Navigator, Dan Pilata, Big Show founder, Pilata Teamwork, and yes, I can speak, author of Uncharitable, How Restraints on Nonprofits Undermine Their Potential, and first up in our Survivor Spotlight, Harry Bass, young adult survivor of salivary gland cancer, President and founder of the Carnegie Sports Group. As a reminder, this broadcast is a production of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation, online at i2y.com. We help young adults fight cancer every day and are bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight because it's not okay that 70,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer every year. So hello, my friends, and welcome back to yet another fun and exciting romp to the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show, where remission is not a cure and survivorship is all that matters. And a big hello out there to our first-time listeners listening to us on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes. Big shout-out to you there, and I don't have my script, but I'm just winging it and saying hello. Well, we're broadcasting live from the Chemo Deck, which That's is our fabulous studio in downtown, in downtown Manhattan. In downtown Manhattan. Yes, for sure. Uh, time to welcome, for better or for worse, our chief cancer anarchist, vice president of grassroots, Jack Bufard. What's up? Lisa, I live my entire life unscripted, so don't worry about it. Okay. It seems to work out well for me. No, it doesn't. Jack will be monitoring our live, concurrent, interactive chat room. So if you have questions for our guests, please let them know. We'll do our best to get them answered. And uh, a big special shout-out to Amanda Freeman, still in uh, recovery from her lung cancer, lung surgery for her sarcoma. Uh, we wish her well. We, we love her to death. She'll be back uh, hopefully soon. She's making a phenomenal recovery. Can't wait to see her again. Yeah. Yes. Feel well, Amanda. Get and, better. And we have some very special guests in our live studio audience tonight. 
Singe Larson, Sherry Kaplan, and Frank Teutsch from the Andrews Larson Teutsch Foundation. They came to visit us tonight to discuss their charity. It's an amazing organization that's filling a really important need about um, art therapy for young adults affected by cancer. Is that, do I do that right? Is that fair? And what's the website? They're nodding. <laughs> That's a yes. Is it the A, what is it, A-L Foundation? A-L-R? A-L-T Foundation. A-L-T Foundation.org. Okay. So this is why we need even a few more mics. Yes. We've ramped this place up with tons of mics, and yet we need more. We need the guy with the boom. Yes, we need a with, boom With mic. the big fuzzy rabbit. We need the that big fuzzy boom That they drop in front mic. of people. Yeah. yeah. That occasionally makes it into the frame of... That makes it into the frame when, like, cut, ha, 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 boom, right. frame and mic. Yes, yep. exactly, exactly. And, of course, joining us tonight, as always, Aaron Eloise, our VP of Outreach, and Kenny Kane, our VP of Operations. The Dangers. Yes. TKL. Yes, exactly. No one knows what that means except us. Go ahead, Kenny. What does it mean? The Kane life. The Kane life. Exactly. Or lack of. No, he's... Aww. Jack, he makes you. <laughs> what are you talking about? He's got a hot babe. Yes, he does. Yeah. Okay, the Kane life. Yeah. <laughs> you can't win. I'm there's, jealous there's of the Kane no life. There's no way to win. Everyone's At all. At all. Um, we're, we have a... This is a show I've been wanting to do for a very long time now. Oh. I've given two-hour lectures on why people should not start charities because of the insane process by which I was run through the grist mill organizing this I2Y group uh, over the last seven years. And the rigors of what it takes to build a real enterprise are beyond the comprehension of the rational person. Uh, would you do it all over again? I would not do it all over again. I would stay wealthy working in advertising. <laughs> if you could start at the point as where we are right now, you'd do it all over again. Yeah, if I just like was hired to start right now, yeah, yeah. sure. If you Fantastic. started on the day you met me, you'd do it all over again. If I started on the day I met mean, you, would have hung myself. <laughs> I believe in the legalese, they call that defenestration. <laughs> Every once in a while I think about that too, and I think, hmm, I should have started a hedge fund. But then I say, what's a hedge fund again? Right, exactly. Yeah. That's the problem when you're not a money person. Right. You work in charity. Because you are charity. You are charity. I'm totally charitable. So in other words, don't start a charity, but be a charity? Yes. Yes. Please give me money. I have the Kobe and Hannah Greenswag Need to Go to College Foundation. You and a lot of other people out there have something similar. Yes, they do. Yeah. Anyway, Hannah's sick, by the way. Hannah, uh, we we love her. She's fantastic. My my beautiful, beautiful daughter. Um, She has a cold. It's her first cold. At five months plus, At five months plus. Five and a half months. Uh, She has a little cold. Took her to the doctor today. She's going on this, um, uh, it's like a vaporizer type of thing, and then you have to, like, hook it up to your vacuum and suck the snot out of her brain. It's, it's an amazing device that scares any parent to think they could do this to their child. Is she on Oxycontin yet? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, but that's in the cabinet. That's mommy's prescription. So does this mean you're going to be up all night and you're going to be a bear tomorrow? I'm up all night anyway. I've gotten so used to not sleeping that I just I work from, like, 11 to 4 a.m. He's a vampire. I have become that's a vampire. True. I become a vampire. Yeah. But anyway, so she's all, like, snotty and stuff, so she has a hard time sleeping now because you can't put her on her stomach because it just... <laughs> and you put her on her back, and she's used to sleeping on her stomach. Yeah. So, anyway. I, with the all, I bet there's all these parents that they're listening, oh, you don't know what you're going yeah. on for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait till they turn this and this and this, and wait till they take the yeah. card for the first time. <laughs> right. right, exactly. A little cold. Exactly. Fantastic. But tonight's show is fantastic. I'm excited about it because we have two gentlemen on who represent, well, three gentlemen on, uh, two of whom represent diametrically opposing philosophies about charity in the United States, how it's managed, how it's governed, how it's overseen, transparency, accountability, fundraising, and ethics. 
This is going to be an incredible show. And again, one I really wanted to do for a long time now. Dan Pilata is a hero of mine because he really stepped forth. Whether I agree with him or not, doesn't matter. He's a hero of mine because he really stepped forth, took the reins on a way of thinking that is not very popular. Yeah. But he's made a very credible case for how you can still do well and do good at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. We're thrilled to have him on the show. Yeah. Jack, what's up? We had some, some – what are you doing? Well, I went to APON this weekend. And what is APON? APON is the Association of Pediatric Hematology and Oncology Nurses. And we, Woo! Love, we like them? We love them. Because Jack gets a cracker for that. Why? Because you remembered what it meant. Of course I do. And you articulated it intelligently. Do you really think I'm going to forget hanging out with 800 pediatric nurses this You know weekend? what? And, and not only that, but this is your second nurse event in a row. Yes, it is. What yeah. do we do? We, we, we like to hire this guy to go schmooze nurses. Yes, exactly. I exactly. do, and I do it well. Yeah, maybe, he, maybe Kenny Kane's got nothing on you, actually. That's right. The yeah. booth wife outranks No, the, Kenny goes to the social worker events. It's just because Jack still fits into that mental capacity of the pediatric ward. Yes. Is that why I, I connected with them so yes, well? Yes, yes. Yes, you're their, you're their patient. And I came home with a suitcase full of squeaky ducks. <laughs> but it was really great, and I want to send a, a, a hello out to everybody that I met this weekend and any first-time listeners that we have uh, from the connections that I made at the conference. And, of course, we were a big hit there. The, the pediatric nurses love us because they can – show our, our website to their patients and their patients' parents and so on, and it's one-stop shopping for the newly diagnosed patient as well as survivors. Speaking of our website, uh, big news for everyone out there. Uh, in case you missed it, we relaunched our website this Tuesday um, to uh, not, much not much hullabaloo. I'll just speak very phonetically tonight. Uh, but I'm very proud of it. I think we've got a lot of good feedback on it so far. It is a work in progress, so if you want to go visit i2y.com or stupidcancer.com, uh, all drains lead to the ocean, as I said in Finding Nemo. But uh, we would love your, your feedback, your comments. If you have any questions, we're constantly looking to improve the website. It took three months to redesign it based on a lot of feedback from the crowd. And um, like I said, we're hoping that it really serves our mission well. Yeah, and I was showing these nurses the site, and... The middle of the home page are these tabs that say, I'm all alone. I need money. I need a lawyer. I can't work. I need a break. And they just love that because the newly diagnosed patient or a survivor who, who has these, you know, is making these statements can just see that and boom, click one button and see all the resources that have to do with isolation, all the resources that have to do with needing money and where to get financial assistance. And everybody needs to take Matthew's words also very seriously because this website obviously exists not for us but for everybody else out there. Right. So yeah. you guys need to it, – it totally exists for you, so you need to give us as much feedback as possible to make it uh, work for you as best as it possibly can. Yeah, and we had our team of experts, meaning just the – Jack and Kenny, really. We have experts? Yeah, we had our team. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Root through the website with a fine-tooth comb. More of a pick. <laughs> and uh, just to make sure that all of our links worked and all of our websites were up to date. But you know, we're just really, really excited about the new site. No, it it's looks been great. a long time coming. And uh, like it, it needs to serve the needs of not just cancer patients and survivors and caregivers, but nurses and social workers who have young adults, and they're really not sure where to send them when they need help. And we want to be that first go-to place for them. Absolutely. So nurses, speak up. Yes, exactly, exactly. Call Jack. That's right. Email me. There were, there were actually a lot of nurses that loved our social, like the idea of our social events and the happy hours right. and our tweet-ups and our boot camps and such. And, right. Uh, they went back to their uh, cancer centers armed with all of our swag, and there's going to be a lot of good things happening 
in areas that we, we, we haven't necessarily reached yet. So it was exciting. Well, congratulations on a successful event and for pimping us out again to some of our favorite people. Always. All righty. Well, let's bring out our, uh, our Survivor Spotlight tonight. Very, very stoked to have this guy. All righty. 8-12. Harry Bass is a cancer survivor and New York born president and founder of Carnegie Sports and Entertainment. He has transformed the world of philanthropy by integrating sports and entertainment business with altruistic endeavors. He has been featured on the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Sports Business Journal. The number one journal I'll never be profiled in. <laughs> in 2009, he was, named, he was named by Partnership Activation as one of 48 rising stars in the sports and entertainment industries, as well as a top executive under 30 years old by under30ceo.com. Please welcome to the stupid campus show, my friend and yours, Harry Bass. Harry. Thank you. Hey, Harry. Hey, Harry. How are you guys? So I, I mentioned, uh, first of all, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I mentioned that the uh, the Sports Business Journal will be the, the least likely <laughs> publication to ever mention me. Yeah. But uh, I want to I wanna start with your story, uh, salivary cancer. That, that, that kind of sucks. Yeah, so, yeah, I was diagnosed when I was 22 years old as a senior in college, um, and it's a pretty rare type of cancer. You don't meet many people uh, with salivary gland cancer, I'll tell you that. So well, what were the, yeah, how did you, rare. yeah, exactly, and what, what were your symptoms? I had no symptoms. Um, it, I had no symptoms. I was a uh, senior the best in college. Kind. Yeah. What's that? Those are the best kind. Those are the best kind, yeah. The most, uh, those are definitely the best kind. Yeah, I was, uh, I was a senior in college uh, studying at NYU, and um, I was actually on my way to South Africa. Uh, NYU was sending me to South Africa basically to defend my honors thesis. Um, so I was getting an all-expenses paid trip to South Africa, and, and it was my first time to Africa. So I, was, I went to get immunizations. I had to get, like, typhoid and, um, you know, malaria pills, nothing serious. Um, but the doctor just did a full, sort of a full body exam, and, and you know, and, and when he felt my glands, I go, "Ow!" Um, and uh, they sent me to you know an ENT after that, and and, and just like that, I was diagnosed with uh, salivary, gland, salivary gland cancer. Wow. Okay. Um, so, what were you defending that you had to go to Africa for? I was defending my my honors thesis in college was how the World Cup, which which just happened. Um, was basically helping South Africa's peace and economic efforts, um, and uh, and NYU found it to be interesting, and uh, and basically was they sent me over there, um, and, and if it wasn't for that trip, I it, because I was asymptomatic, I probably would have not found out, you know, about the cancer until months or years or who knows, you know. And how old were you again? Right now I'm 25. And how old were were you when you went to Africa? For 22, this? I believe you said. I right? was 22. Yeah. See, I'm, li- I'm, I'm technically listening, technically, <laughs> unofficially listening. It's okay. So you have been an athlete your whole life, correct? Yeah, I was an athlete. I was always, I was always athletic. Um, What's that like? What's that like? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's fun. <laughs> that involves um, yeah, so moving, I've been an athlete moving life. body parts, moving joints yeah, right, and stuff. Right, right, right. right. It's not just we. It's not just lifting children and changing the diapers. <laughs> I have built a lot of lower back muscles thanks to my children. I will tell you that much. They're the best uh, paperweights I've ever had. 
But tell us, we want to know about uh, Carnegie Sports and Entertainment when we just read our intro here. Tell the folks about, you know, transform the world of philanthropy by integrating sports and entertainment business with altruistic endeavors. Put that into uh, real sure. people speak for us. Yeah, terms, pretend you're yeah. talking to Jack. All right, so so basically, you know, when when I was diagnosed and I was going through treatment and stuff, the you know salivary gland cancer is, is very rare. The type of cancer I had was was even more rare, called adenoid cystic carcinoma. Affects about 600 people in the U.S. annually, um, and and for being a 22 year old male, was even you know it was it was extremely extremely rare for even a rare type of cancer. So anyway, so. I was on my way to law school at the time, and when, you know, I went sort of going through the cancer process, as, as I'm sure many um, patients and survivors go through, sort of you get sort of reevaluate things and so on and so forth. And, you know, I, at the time, I didn't want to go back. I didn't want to go to law school and so on and so forth. But so I decided, all right, I'm going to give back to my, you know, cancer research. That, that's sort of what I wanted to do um, towards the end of treatment when I knew I was going to be okay. And... The, the, you know, because the cancer was so rare, um, the funding scenario was, was very bleak. So, um, you know, the government wasn't really putting a lot of money into um, funding adenoid cystic carcinoma because it affected so few individuals. Um, and then individuals weren't really putting money into research because there was just so few of them, you know. So yeah. basically, I mean, I had an idea to tap into a third pocket, basically going after corporations for, for funding. Um, for my cancer research. And, and the reason I had that idea is because that was all I knew at the time. I studied sports entertainment marketing at NYU. I was 22. I had no experience, and that was just sort of all I knew in a way. So that was my idea, basically, to tap into that third new pocket, um, being the corporate pocket. And just with that idea was really how I, I started the company. And originally we started basically representing nonprofit organizations and really helping them fundraise um, by by going after corporate partnerships and sponsorships and and so on so on and so forth and three plus years later we've become uh, you know a true agency um, so we represent a lot of nonprofit organizations have done some great work with you know Sloan Kettering and Ethan Don's charity Grassroots Soccer um, we represent we also represent a lot of brands um, like uh, you know Coca Cola Chipotle Mexican Grill Nike and sort of help them spend their dollars towards charitable organizations. Um, and we sort of trans- transformed, and we also work with a lot of um, athletes and celebrities um, around their um, around their foundation. So, but this all sort of started with that one question: was like, how do I create funding to go to my cancer research? You know, and it was basically just through my my own cancer story. So, Harry, explain to the folks out there the difference between philanthropy and cause-related marketing, and who do you when you're advising uh, different charities out there? And they, you know, you're you're helping them uh, raise money. Mm-hmm. Where do you go and just get the dollars for philanthropy? Uh, and and where do you go and actually say, this is cause related marketing, where you can put your dollars towards something, you can have your brand logo, and can you sort of explain the difference between sure, the two yeah, of those yeah, and, yeah. and how you so, how you pick which charity to go which different route? Sure. So I mean, I think there's a big difference between philanthropy and charity. I think that's a very big difference right there. You know. Um, yeah. I think, you know, 20 years ago, I think, you know, like philanthropy was, you know, just very wealthy people writing checks, you know, or charity golf tournaments, you know what I mean? But charity right now is has transformed, um, and it's everywhere you look. You know, when you go to Starbucks and you buy Ethos Water, that's charity. You know what I mean? So um, what we really try to do is, is, is our goal is to really, um, you know, uh, make everything somewhat charitable, you know? 
So mm-hmm. cause marketing is really the definition of cause marketing is really, you know, basically taking a company or, or you know, it's marketing a cause with cancer research, HIVA, so on and so forth. But what we really specialize in is corporate social responsibility. So it's how do you take a corporation, a for-profit company, sort of get them to be philanthropic or charitable at the same time, help them sort of promote their own business, you know? So like right. that ethos water that I just gave you, when you go to Starbucks and you buy ethos water, five cents, I believe, goes to, um, for every purchase goes to build um, irrigation wells in Africa, you know? Right. So you don't really, you're essentially saying that you don't deal with philanthropy per se, because that's no. just writing the check, you go away, you get your tax deduction, you've done something good, end of story. Exactly. So what we would try to do is what, I, what, what, what is the, um, the crux of this show is we don't want to go after philanthropic budgets, right? We go after purely marketing and right. you know, marketing, sponsorship, advertising, promotional budgets, or sort of the for-profit budgets, you know? The reason we do that is because those budgets are much larger. You know, every company is different, obviously, but generally they're much larger than, say, a philanthropic budget, you know? Coca-Cola's right. marketing budget is much bigger than Coca-Cola's foundation budget. Right, right. You see the size of that? You see the, you know, the rationale there? So our approach is to really go after that bigger pocket, and there's a certain technique in order to go after that bigger pocket. Is there a balance between these companies needing to do some goodwill versus having to do some goodwill? I think um, that's a good question. I mean, I think I think right now we're at a very interesting time where if, if you're not doing some form of cause marketing or charitable or philanthropic initiatives, it almost looks bad on the company, you know? Yeah. And that's, so, that's, that's a very interesting – we're in a very interesting time in, in, in regarding corporate social responsibility and cause marketing. So how do you make the case to a corporation that isn't embracing CSR or corporate social responsibility that this is in their interest and they're going to lose market share value or brand loyalty without having it? Sure. So, I mean, I'll sort of take you guys through how we sort of approach, you know, a company. Um, well, one, you know, with any sort of cause marketing or any, any sort of, you know, you know, whatever we do, there's always business benefits, right? So there's whatever it's branding or advertising or, you know, event promotions or so on and so forth. It's very easy to create marketing budgets. Uh, I'm sorry, to create marketing benefits, you know? That's do anything. That's very, very easy to do no matter what. But with cause marketing, you're able to get two additional things um, that I'll get to in a second that you can't get, say, through traditional marketing, right? One of them being is, is these amazing consumer benefits. Now, the stats have been updated by Cone, um, but but with you know as the one we go by is the 87% rule, where 87% of consumers will buy a socially conscious brand over a non-socially conscious brand. Okay, so in layman's terms, you have Coke and Pepsi, right? Coke's donating to breast cancer awareness, let's say, and Pepsi is not. Eight, eight, eight 8.7 out of 10 people will buy a Coke over Pepsi purely because of their charitable association. Right. That's, that's huge. You know, that's absolutely huge. So you're able to get that that you can't get, say, through just, you know, a, a 30-second spot on TV. I want to know who that .7 person is and what they look like. <laughs> Me too. Um, so that's one, right? And then the other thing is tax benefits, right? So when you're dealing with the 501c3, you know, there, there, there's tax benefits. There's tax-exempt donations, you know? So all of a sudden, through cause marketing, you get your marketing and business benefits, Right. You get your consumer benefits that are very, very powerful, and, and at its crux, that's what cause marketing, and that's why it's so powerful. You get because you're, you're dealing with affinity, and you're dealing with emotion, you know. 
Then all, then the third thing is you get tax benefits. So that's sort of how we go in and approach approach a company to really uh, take part in this. Is it's sort of a, a very efficient way to spend a dollar, especially in this down economy. We we've seen the rise of cost marketing um, 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 really take off. Yeah, Harry, let me ask you too because it says you, you talked about too that you. Uh, you kind of consult with athletes and ce- and celebrities who have foundations. Um, I've spent most of my career interviewing interviewing celebrities, and I know that I would get pretty peeved when I would read their bios before I'd go in, and they'd have this, that, and the other charity on there. And I just knew that they knew very little about them, but that some publicists told them that they need to do this and they need to get involved because it looks good. And, you know, they were pretty ill-informed. Do you come up against that, or what's the biggest misconception or, or that you have to kind of – tweak or work with when you get somebody famous who comes to you and says, you know, I want to do this, and do you run up against those types that are, you know, not quite, um, their heart isn't quite there, or, or where do they kind of trip up along the way? Sure. I mean, I, you know, in, in my experience, I've been very, very fortunate and very lucky, and then the the athletes and celebrities that we've worked with have been have been excellent to work with. Um, so my in my personal experience, we've been very, very lucky, you know, yeah. in that regard. Um. Generally speaking, yeah, it's very tough. You know, you don't, you know, you want everyone's intentions to be good, and you want, you know, you don't want, you know, reading cue cards and and you, you know, their publicist telling them to say anything. But listen, at the end of the day, right? At the end of the day, if someone's donating to a certain charity or money or awareness is being, you know, put in place. Then who cares what the hell they know? Yeah, yeah, I don't really (laughs) care. Who cares if they're a moron? If they they convince somebody to go out there and take action. Well, we ha- we have to wrap in a minute, but this whole show is about the ethics of CEOs making lots of money or not versus, you know, effective leadership and nonprofit versus is it even worth starting a charity especially in today's climate given, you know, often the emotional need to start one versus the pragmatic need to start one. Do you have any specific I don't know how familiar you are with with Charity Navigator or Dan Pilata's work, but do you have uh, just a a, a quick Opinion on on where we're at with uh, you know the CEO of the Boy Scouts making three million dollars a year. Do I have an opinion on that? Yes. I, listen, all all charities are different. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I think I think it's in, you know I think that's ridiculous. You know, I mean, making that sum of money, you know, for uh, you know for a charity. However, um, we live in a capitalistic society. You know what I mean? It, 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 we're, you know we. Charities are able to, to govern what they do. I mean, you know, the fact that charities are essentially public entities, I think, looks bad upon that char- you know, that charity of a guy who's making a three million dollars salary. I think, when regarding cause marketing, if someone's a- if a company is able to profit and do well, but at the same time give to another cause, and that's going to help them, I'm all for it. You know what I mean? We live in a capitalistic society. If someone can profit and do well, but also do good from from a from a moral point of view. That's I sign off, and there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to that question. I didn't mean to like throw you in the corner there, but it's just a really important conversation that's being held now in in the the, the world of nonprofit governance, the ethics, the the trust, accountability more than ever. Um, and I'm sure that's something that comes up when you have to talk to these corporations about that. As sure, well. yeah, we have to be very very conscious of all the legality, the accounting rules, so on and so forth. I mean, there's there's it's uh it's it's uh certainly not a um you know a light easy topic to to talk about Jack's online now looking to th- see if the number two job at the boy Scouts is open. <laughs> I want to see if there was a millionaire merit badge. 
<laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, Harry, I really appreciate it. You are a, uh, a perfect example of a young adult affected by cancer who has truly gotten busy living. I love the fact that we are. Uh, I met you through our friend Ethan Zahn, who is an amazing guy. You've been on the show twice. Uh, just you're doing great work. I'm enamored with everything you do, and you know that already. And uh, I can't wait for the day that we can work together. Absolutely, I, 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 uh, I'm honored to be on the show. Finally, you know, uh, I've heard you guys are doing a great thing, and uh, um, you know, and uh, just thanks for having me on. And what's your website for our listeners? Uh, CarnegieSE.com. Um, and uh, it's uh, Carnegie out, Sports and Entertainment. Yep. All right. Well, you take care of yourself, Harry. Hopefully, we'll see you soon. Thanks, All Harry. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Have a good night. Harry. All right. Harry Bask, everybody, from Carnegie Sports Entertainment. All right. Let's get right to the news here. Hello. I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Panzer. Just the facts, ma'am. Alrighty, during this part of the Stupid Cancer Show, we listen to Jack Buffard stammer through a series of special announcements to let our listeners know about a whole bunch of stuff, free stuff, that we want you to know about, like conferences, happy hours, retreats, scholarships, support groups, concerts, and more. If you have something coming up that you'd like us to broadcast and spread the word about during this part of the show, please send an email to Jack Buffard. His email is jack at i2y.com. That's jack at i2y.com. All you, bro. Thanks, Matt. All right, folks, here's your Super Cancer News. Head on over to events.i2y.com. Events.i2y.com is your one-stop shop for all stupid cancer events happening nationwide. Stay in the loop because something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we don't want you missing out on it, especially if I'm not going to be there. Upcoming events are Happy Hour in North Carolina, the Halloween Party in New York City, and everybody's favorite event, the fourth annual International OMG Summit for Young Adults is being held April 16th and 17th in New York City. That is official in the books, April 16th and 17th, OMG, here in New York City. So you wanted a two-day event, you're getting a two-day event. Yes. And uh, we're going to tease you. I wanted a three-day event. All right, you can you can be the only one on Monday. You can, you can come early, and we're going to tease everybody by saying there's going to be a really awesome event happening during the evening. So uh, the Saturday night social event is not to be missed. Is awesome. So stay in the loop because we might tell you about it someday. All right, folks. Being that I lack both the time and the intelligence to share with you all of the great stuff we have going on for young adults, I've created the Booth News blog. Everyone needs to check out boofnews.i2y.com. That's B-O-O-F.i2y.com. For the official list of all stupid cancer news resources, including surveys, exercise programs, writing workshops, peer services, and fertility resources. And that, my friends, is your stupid cancer news. You had some, you had some ump in that in that news delivery this time. Jack's excited about the OMG Summit. Yeah. I am, like, wicked excited. Wicked. We're very excited about it. Uh, we have our Halloween party coming up in two weeks. We'll talk about that next week. Uh, we're working on our, the first stupid cancer crawl, uh, bar crawl, that is. And uh, I'm very, very excited to announce that we only have one slot left for the oh, Team Stupid wow. Cancer Half Marathon, New York City Half Marathon, next March. We have 25 slots. We filled 20. Four slots. If you'd like to be that 25th slot, no peer pressure, 
Go to TeamStupidCancer.com. We would love to have you. Are the gingers running it? They're both running they are. it. Both With of Jack. them. So you, Lisa, I'm running on. So we're the only two slackers that aren't running I it? I don't run. I, I, I observe. <laughs> I'm, I'm more of a scientician. Matt walks fast. Yes. A scientician? Scientician. Yes. You're holding up like, signs. No, like a scientist and an optician. Called a scientist, Matt. Yeah, I know. Actually, there's two people no, in the chat room that I think. somebody who holds up signs during right. a race. <laughs> a scientician. Scientician. Yeah, so there's two exactly. people in the chat room I think should fight over our last spot, and that's Lindsay, Gina, and Val Gallo. So yeah. I think one of them should do it. <clears throat> okay. I'm better, I'm better at biking. One day we'll get one of those. What about rides? pushing me we'll in a stroller? <laughs> it's the stupid kids that push Jack a thon. <laughs> <laughs> Not push Jack around a How about downhill? Okay, we can yeah. do the downhill And I'll let go. It'll be a let go with us. Well, uh, I wa- there was one other thing I wanted to mention. I want to bring this up with Ken, but I wanted to hear our dialogue about it before we bring him on the show. Uh, Live Strong has this new program now where they, are, they have all this money to give away, which is great. We like when they give money away to very, very needy and important causes, especially hospitals and clinics that help young adults and help cancer survivors of all ages. But I, I take umbrage with this. I, I can't claim that I know it in complete granular detail, but from what I've read and what I've saw, uh, they are doing um, a voting, public voting, for um, Livestrong to decide where their money goes. That's and weird. I have a problem with that because foundations that give money away should be the ones that determine where their money goes. It shouldn't be up to the public to decide how a foundation spends its money. The public should only decide how, like, contest money is spent, like the Pepsi Refresh Project. Right. Or the, uh, chase, or or the, the chase, chase Giving. Community Giving or the right. Amex Open Project. These are things that are crowdsourced and public and, I think, ethically viable. The idea of the, the public telling, you know, the Ford Foundation, you have to give money here and not there. We're not the experts. We don't vet these grant applications. It's not our responsibility. So I put that out to the crowd. I put that out to Livestrong. I would really appreciate someone coming to me and explaining why it's up to me to decide this cancer center is better than that one for your money. But wouldn't a cancer center that has, like, a bigger community, like, be able to, like, like, like uh, slam the yeah. voting? and Like if Sloan Kettering is up against, like, you know, the Podunk Cancer Center or Podunk Podunk? Yeah, they're not going to get the same. Not, I, I feel like Anna Volger is, like Arkansas or something, right? Yeah, but that's just not fair. It just doesn't seem so, fair and, and equitable. So he's got his hands full right now, but time to have Doug Ullman back on the show? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would love to have Doug. There's an open invitation for Doug on the show every week, by the way. That's a, I just said that. Okay, Doug, there you go. <clears throat> but, yeah, Lance is in hot water again, and, and there was a brilliant article that actually Livestrong posted on their Facebook wall, it's gotten hundreds of comments and hundreds of, of likes about this new Fast Company magazine article about Lance and him representing the brand. Would Livestrong, the brand, survive if Lance went down? We should take our own poll. We should take our own poll. People should just, what do you think? Well, wedding, Chat room right now. <laughs> wedding the Jump Whistle. Wedding the Whistle, I think this would be a very appropriate time to bring on uh, Ken Berger. So uh, let's uh, cue this up. Ladies and gentlemen, we are pleased to have with us today Ken Berger, President and CEO of Charity Navigator. Before joining Charity Navigator, Ken was the Director of Operations at Professional Service Centers for the Handicapped, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer, and then the President and CEO of the Floating Hospital, until moving on to being Chief Operating Officer of 
I'm not going to pronounce this right. Shaw O'Neo. This is where we need to ask beforehand. I don't know what this is. He'll, he'll, he'll correct me. Dr. Galakowicz. <laughs> Dr. Galakowicz. Ken has over 30 years involved with healthcare and nonprofits and even has a blog, Ken's Commentary, which I read on a daily basis now. Uh, from helping the homeless and disabled to next focusing on the na- char- national charitable needs. <clears throat> Please welcome my friend and yours, the venerable Ken Berger. Ken. Hi, Ken. Hey. Hi. How are you? Good evening. Hey, love that music. It brings me back, man. <laughs> we try to be as hip as possible here. Hip or hippie. Hippish. Yeah, well, that's that's that, me. That was more hippie days. Well, I'm, right. I'm stoked to have you on the show. I've been at, I, you have no idea how often Jack and I, like in like black ops fashion, go all the way through everything within Charity Navigator to just cull out and skulk out the dirtiest stuff we can throw at other organizations. <laughs> Make me proud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can't really take anyone down, but we can make a lot of people pissed. We don't we don't take anyone down. We just create awareness as to how some organizations spend their money and how they're rated. Right. So I'm a huge fan. Who like drinking member? I'll do whatever you want. So oh, talk us <laughs> talk us through how you became the god of watchdogism in the nonprofit world. Well, you know, basically what happened was there was a philanthropist, a guy who was self-made millionaire, and uh, he wanted to give back to uh, through philanthropy, and he wanted to find some kind of a place where he could get objective information. And at that time, there were the scandals going on with the United Way and Covenant House and Hale House, and uh, so he really wanted to be careful, and he found that there was no place he could go to get objective information about the performance of the charities. And so he created Charity Navigator for that purpose, to be a place that would be a guide to intelligent giving. And we started out in 2002 with about 18,000 visitors, and today we have about 3.5 million unique visitors, not just hits, but visitors, unique visitors each year. We're estimated to impact somewhere between 5 and $10 billion of charitable giving each year. Which is extraordinary. It just blows my mind. I, and and um, I guess, let's just start from scratch for the lay, lay listener out there. Why is there a need to oversee charities? And in like a well, smurfy world, shouldn't things be run the right way? Well, you know, it, it, it actually gets back to the conversation you were having about Livestrong and the question of whether the public should be making these decisions or whether you need experts. One of the problems is that uh, in the world today for nonprofits, oftentimes, he who has the best marketing or the best advertising wins, not he who is the most mission, he or she is the most mission-driven or really has the best results. And so the sad fact is that for a variety of reasons, much of the money that goes into the charitable sector is really inefficiently used. And I actually find that Dan Pallotta and I uh, agree on a lot of things, and that would be one of them, that the way that we... Uh, give out the hundreds of billions of dollars that we give to charity each year is pretty irrational and based more on uh, feeling than on thought. And, you know, one of our taglines is where the place we want to be the place where the heart meets the mind and that people begin to see that when you give to charity, you really got to use your head and a little bit of research can, can really help you avoid some disasters. And Ken, also for the layperson out there, explain your methodology. And aren't you in the process of tweaking it somewhat? Yes. Uh, yes, we are. We started out uh, 
basically we were trying to find a place where we could get objective information. We asked the charities to provide us with information, and most of them, and that's another challenge, unfortunately said, who the heck are you guys, and why would I possibly want to give information to a place that's going to give me a grade, uh, so we're not giving you anything. So we had to find a place to get information that was standardized and objective, and so we went to the IRS, because every charity of a certain size has to present certain information reports each year to the IRS that's public. And so we began with that information. So for the first eight years of our history, our focus has been on the financial performance of the charities. But this year, uh, we announced our plan for the first time to revamp our rating system to go to what we consider to be the three critical things that need to be looked at. One is the financial health. The second is the accountability and transparency to stakeholders, the public and others, and, and the people served. And then the third area, the most important, is the results of the work, and that our rating system in the future is going to look at all three of those dimensions. We call it a three-dimensional rating system, moving from one dimension of finance to this three-dimensional view, which we think is what donors need to make a, a good decision. And so in addition to going to the IRS, and so have the charities become any more helpful in providing you with other information, or where else do you call your information from? The charities have become more helpful because if you get our highest score, you can get our seal. And by the way, everything is for free. We don't charge the charities. We don't charge users. We're unique in that regard. And uh, they know that if they score high with us, they will get donors they never heard of before. We just had a charity a few weeks ago called us up out of the blue and said they got a $2 million donation based upon their charity navigator review. So they are definitely starting to cooperate more when they Would see. you like to join our board of directors? <laughs> Can we get a review, like, instantly? My heart's with you. We are right. a charity, too, and trust me, I know what it's like to, to you know, the challenges of raising money. Uh, but... Uh, so, so, yes, they are cooperating more, but what we're planning to do, though, is we're going to focus on uh, the website of charities because that's where donors have to go, that's where the public needs to go, and we want to we encourage charities to report their results, to report their accountability, their best practices on their websites, and that's where we're going to start looking for this additional information. So we don't want them to send us a report in the mail because that doesn't help the public. We want to drive more information into the public uh, domain through the websites. So let me ask you a quick question. This is something you where know, the crowdsourcing is great when you're trying to figure out what you know what the new flavor of Mountain Dew is going to be. So. Right. But I work in healthcare. You know, I, I'm involved with Google Health. I do a lot of stuff in social media for the Health 2.0 technology movement. And when you crowdsource certain things, it can tend to be very misleading. For example, yeah. even even things like Yelp. For example, Yelp yeah. can make or break a restaurant or a venue if just there's just one bad waiter one night who had a bad day. Yeah. So. And that doesn't really do justice to the organization. And you hope things balance out through the net of the average person that gives it a higher rating overall. When yeah. you start crowdsourcing on charities, yep. you know, how do you vet that? Because I, I know you have comment fields, and there's a lot of vitriol and a yep. lot of praise. It's, it's very extreme in the comments on a lot of charities there. How do you vet that? Well, you know, we, we have a partner that we're looking to move forward with that does crowdsourcing. But basically for us, we're going to try to what, what I would call triangulate, which is to get information from as many directions as possible. 
crowdsourcing is one avenue, but it is not going to be heavily weighted because of the weaknesses you've described. And typically crowdsourcing really only adds value if you reach a significant number so that you can, uh, um, you can crowd out the, the outliers, the extreme outliers that are either you know, biased to the extreme in one direction or another and you get the actual pulse. But as you say, it's not like a restaurant. So even then, the value of crowdsourcing for a complex nonprofit uh, is limited. So it's only going to be one of many other tools that we're going to consider as we move forward. But it empowers and engages um, people who volunteered in a powerful way, and they can, they can provide some important insight. Ken, what's your feeling about um, charities suing other charities, like the case that recently came up that was written about in uh, the Wall Street Journal, I think other places, about Komen suing other charities, I believe, for the, the tagline, For the Cure, um, which they claim is their own. And, of course, it's hard to do things uh, for, for charities, sort of say, well, how can you take that as your own when we're all doing things for a cure and Komen right. reaching you know, out and, and suing those other charities for that. What's your feeling about that? Well, the sad reality is that uh, in many ways the nonprofit sector is filled with uh, shark-infested waters, and if you come too close to the edge of the castle, they'll pour hot oil on your head. It's a very, there's a lot of friction in the environment. There's a lot of hiding and, and withholding and trying to control information. I've, li- I've lived it for 30 years, and I can tell you, there, there are just as many scoundrels and closed-minded views within the nonprofit sector as anywhere else. You've got good people, bad people, those who believe in openness and transparency, and those that want to control and dominate. And so it's just, you know, it's unfortunately the nature of the beast, um, just like you would encounter in the for-profit or the government sector. So you don't think, like, in the for-profit sector when, you know, somebody says, well, I'm, I'm protecting my IP, we are running a business, stay yes. away. How, how is that different for you in the nonprofit sector? Well, you know, I, I think that there's a, there's a balance that has to be struck where, on the one hand, there, there is certain information that you need um, to have a certain, uh, to maintain your, your viability as an organization. So you don't want to, you know, thrust a knife into your heart uh, by being so open that it gets ridiculous. But I do find that oftentimes there are rationalizations for withholding information that go way beyond uh, rational justification and really get into hyper-control, hyper-secrecy, and hyper-competitiveness that doesn't meet the mission of the organization and ultimately damages the ability for us to be able to really, you know, do the kind of social change and, and the meaningful change in people's lives that we're looking for. There's a delicate balance. It would be, you know, I can't really, you know, I'm not an attorney. I can't really parse this to a great degree. Just suffice it to say that I often find there's a lot of bogus arguments behind rationalizing um, uh, this sort of um, private, um, you know, pro- private, you know, withholding information and saying that it's our uh, only ours and, and we have the, the copyright for this. Uh, I, have, I think there's a, it's, it's way overdone, and it's, it's really because it's raw competition rather than really mission-driven. Right, and again, it just disenfranchises the end beneficiary. Exactly. So exactly. let's get to the nuts and bolts here. Clearly, we have you and Dan on the show. Dan will be coming up next after we, uh, we finish our segment here. 
about the, uh, the the larger issue of, and your organization is a, is a phenomenal watchdog for this, and your governance and oversight of the 990 forms is executive compensation in the nonprofit world. And right. I, I can see things from both sides. I understand things from both sides. I'm on the fence. A, because I'm not really paid very well at all. <laughs> B, because I don't really care about money. Not that I'm rich, but I'm just not a money thinking person. But C, it, you know, it, it's just a it's it, it's a business. We are all in business, yeah. and you you mm-hmm. have to yeah. pay to get what you need to achieve what you have to get done. But right. at the same time, ethics, morals, you know, public image, crisis communications. Talk to us a little bit about your belief in standards or where people can get a baseline on this this conversation. Well, it's very you know the the general consensus among experts on the question of nonprofit CEO compensation goes like this, and we agree with it which is you need to pay what the market requires in your, in your community, in your cause area. And so the average CEO of the kind of organizations that I think Dan and I are talking about, it, our research shows they make six figures, they make $140,000 a year on average, and in places like New York it's close to 200000 and that's the average salary. And, uh, and so we're fine with that. So we're not arguing against six-figure salaries, but when it gets to the point where people are becoming millionaires and they're living in penthouse suites and they're driving their Jaguars through the streets, uh, and, and this is a public charity that is getting a tax deduction because it's providing a public good uh, that uh, for-profit cannot provide, we think that that is absolutely beyond the pale and outrageous. Yes, it's fine if the CEOs are in the top 5% of wage earners in the United States making those six-figure salaries. That's what the market says they have to be paid. But when it gets to the point where they're becoming millionaires, give me a break that is absurd. And to make the argument that they should be making comparable salaries to the Fortune 500 companies is so beyond logic and common sense, it defies. I don't even know where to begin. It's like an upside-down world to me. And all of the people who come to our site, when they comment on the salaries they see uh, uh, of the CEOs on our website, when they see people that are making those kind of, you know, off-the-chart salaries, every single time, we, we see this comment more than any other, I've been giving to this charity for years, now that I see what that CEO is making, I will never give to this organization again, because it is outrageous, and I think they are right. I see your point, Kim, but couldn't you sort of say that there are so many fields where people just get uh, – you can sort of stretch that argument. I mean, look, I'm a Mets fan, and I don't think Oliver Perez should be paid $12 million next year right. for a guy right. who can barely get the ball over the plate and right. screws up and, you know, the last – you know, walked in a home run. I mean, it's, it's just maddening, and I don't want to pay $300 now to go see a Mets game. And, you know, it's just – you could so you can one way or the other kind of have that conversation across a broad spectrum – of fields, and you know, I guess the flip side is well, if it is business and you are trying to get somebody, and I think, you know, we'll let Dan obviously talk more to this when he comes on. But the best and the brightest, and all of that, and you know, you don't want somebody who's going to shy away and just think, oh, that's nonprofit. I'm not going to make money there. But you know, the most educated, blah 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 blah. I mean, but I think, you- but I think, but I think that Matthew said something earlier, which is that there are that there are there are a variety of motivators that people have to get them into the work that they do. And, and in the nonprofit sector, there are a whole host of reasons, and I talk personally as well, that people choose to do this work. 
Yes, money is, is a motivator, and we want people to have a comfortable salary, including frontline staff, which was really where the problem is, I think. But in addition, there are other motivators that, that people have, and the, the, to say that it's all about money so reduces the conversation and simplifies things and negates these other realities, just as it does that, to compare the nonprofit sector with um, some of these other fields. We're saying pay what the market requires. And so if in some other field it requires something else, well, that's something else. But, but all the research shows that a six-figure salary, low six figures, is adequate to get very competent people. Um, and I've seen many amazing people running these organizations. I think the real problem, which we're missing in this conversation, is the frontline staff who oftentimes don't even get min- barely minimum wage, barely uh, any kind of benefits, and they're doing some of the most critical work. And we get all caught up in this whole thing about these uh, CEOs when, in fact, my, all, all, of th- all that we see is that they're quite comfortable. Thank you very much. They're already in the five, top 5%. Let's leave it alone and really start looking at where the problem really lies, the people who are in the heart and soul of these organizations that are frontline workers. Yeah, and I think it also is true of like with politics too like we have mayor bloomberg here in new york city who takes on a salary of a dollar a year and governor schwarzenegger in california i think takes either no salary or a dollar a year but then we have these ceos that are the heads of these nonprofits that are are staffed by an army of volunteers making millions of dollars well ken is, is this a fair statement because we have to wrap in just a second to bring dan on but is this a fair statement to make uh, or am i extrapolating correctly if you are hired to be the CEO of a a, a multi 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 million or billion dollar charity, mm-hmm. does that does that mean that you the experience you have accrued to earn that position clearly means you've either been in the for profit world for a long time making a lot of money, or you're you're earning close to what you've been earning perhaps so far, and that <clears throat> like you feel like you're entitled to it, or is there just a flat line in the sand that says if you're going to work in charity, you can't make that much money? There are plenty of people who are running these $100 million or above organizations that have worked in the nonprofit sector for their whole careers. It's not a transfer. There are some very skilled people. I'll, take a, I'll give you an example. The head of the Red Cross, which is a $3 billion a year nonprofit, the head of that organization makes around $600,000 a year. And we find for organizations over $100 million, a salary that's around five, 600000 is the norm. So we're okay with that because that's what the market indicates. But then you have others that are smaller organizations, like uh, you, know, you talked about the Boys and Girls Club, where it's just, it's just off the charts, and it shows that the, that the board – is basing their decisions not upon objective analysis, but some kind of convoluted, you know, well, uh, I don't know, uh, thinking that uh, that they 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 don't do the diligence that's required to make this an objective uh, decision. And these arguments that the best we can only get the best and the brightest if we pay those salaries, actually, it's really quite insulting because it assumes that that's the only motivator and that anybody that does this work. That's been doing it for you know for these uh, mere low six figure salaries 
is an idiot that you know it's not competent to do this and i, I really think there's some ex- some assumptions behind this whole argument for these these multi-million dollar salaries that is just so flawed and, and just downright insulting well uh i mean like we, i want to have you back on the show clearly we need to have this larger conversation we could probably do a full show just with you and some of your team members completely deconstructing and destroying organizations that are under the under the gun right now but we are out of time I can't thank you enough for being on the show. Um, my pleasure. But the CharityNavigator.org is, in my, my, my personal opinion, one of the greatest watchdog organizations, one of the greatest nonprofit organizations in the United States today. I encourage anyone who has any questions about the organizations that they care about to read the reviews, to read the Charity Navigator uh, approval. If they get the seal, they're cool. Uh, you guys are doing amazing work, and thank you so much for your time. Oh, well, thank you for saying that, and thank you for having me. All right, everybody. Thank Ken, you, Ken. Berger from Charity Navigator. Matt, nobody, nobody knows this, but when I log into my web browser every day, Charity Navigator is my homepage. Is it? Oh, absolutely. Are you sure about that? No. <laughs> All right, and now for the other side. All right, tonight we're thrilled to welcome Dan Pilata, founder of Pilata Teamworks which invented the multi-day AIDS rise and breast cancer three days and is responsible for raising over half a billion dollars with a B and netted $305 million in nine years and was the winner of Grand Week's Best Cause-Related Event Award. He is the author of Uncharitable, How Restraints on Nonprofits Undermine Their Potential, a number one bestseller in the charity category on Amazon. He was reviewed by the New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post, Today Show, CNN, NPR. He is a William J. Clinton Distinguished lecturer, blogger, all-around businessman. Please welcome Dan Pilata. Dan. Hi, Dan. Hi, how you guys doing? How you doing? Welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show. Well, thanks for having me. Well, you've been listening in the whole time. I read your book. As soon as I found out about it, I hit the shelves. I ran right over to, to Barnes & Noble. I picked it up. Again, huge fan. I think you are really uh, an extraordinary individual. Oh, thank you. That's very sweet of you to say. Appreciate that. So clearly, you know, you've been listening to the show. This is all about the the slippery slope, perhaps, of the charitable state of charities in the United States today, the economy, ethics, morals, guidelines, governance, oversight. But you've really come in and, and game-changed some philosophies about the way we perceive things, the way you can really make a difference. Talk to us about how you got started. You know, I got started in college. I was the chair of the Hunger Action Committee at Harvard. I was really, I was learning about hunger-related mortality and how huge it was, how large the numbers were. And we were doing these little fundraisers for Oxfam, and I got really frustrated with how tiny our little fundraising efforts were up against the massive scale of that problem. I wanted to do something big, so I. I organized a bike ride across America, and 40 of us uh, rode our bikes 4,200 miles that summer from Seattle, Washington, all the way back to Boston to um, raise awareness and raise money about the plight of hungry uh, and starving people and children all over the world. And it was a really, it was a really powerful experience to give your all for something in that way. You know, to do something and have nothing left at the end of it to be spent, depleted spiritually, physically, emotionally. And um, and then when I moved to L.A. 10 years later and began to lose a lot of friends to AIDS, I could see that I and my friends didn't have anything 
any outlet for all of our grief and our anger and our passion and our compassion. You know, you could buy a red ribbon and stick it on your lapel or go rent a tuxedo and go to a a black tie charity dinner, which was not what you felt like doing when you just picked out a casket for your best friend, you know. So uh, I felt like, wow, the AIDS community needs some uh, raw, powerful, big, intimidating uh, challenge that people can participate in, and we created the AIDS rides as a result of that, and um, you know, had average people of all shapes and sizes who hadn't been on a bike since they were kids, pedaling their big wide asses 600 miles from San Francisco to Los Angeles, and um, they didn't look like Lance Armstrong. I can tell you that. But that's what made Ooh. it really beautiful. Yeah, but when, uh, when you go from San Francisco to L.A., it's downhill because you're going south, right? Oh, downhill. <laughs> yeah, you just, you just, uh, you just, it's all downhill. And then we, and then out of that, you know, experience, we, we created the breast cancer three days and then the out of the darkness suicide prevention events and other things. So that's, it came from, um, feeling like, you know, you got one shot at this life and you don't want to die with your music still in you. I wanted to do something, I wanted to do something really big and I wanted to give other people the opportunity to do something really big and, and, and really explore the outer limits of their, their true potential to make a difference in this world. You know, Dan, there's a line uh, in one of your blogs that I was reading, we'll talk on all the stuff about salaries and, you know, as Matt said, you're a game changer, but... The line that you wrote, business is male and charity is female. Uh, explain explain to everybody what you mean by that. Yeah, well, it's not how I feel, obviously. It's what I observe about the way we treat um, charity. You know, it comes, you know, from having read the book, it, our ideas come from these, these, these Puritan roots. Um, when the Puritan society was a male-dominated society, and... and um, Charity is a metaphor for gender discrimination to me, and that's why I say, you know, business, the for-profit sector is male. It has all the permission. It has all of the rights. It's where the serious business of the world is done, and and charity is female. You know, it dabbles in idealism, and we have to be careful how much money it spends, and we can't let it too far off the leash, and we can't give it too much power, and we got to watch it, and we got to have, you know, uh, boards of directors that make sure it doesn't, you know, it doesn't uh, stray uh, too far. So, um, that's well, by what those I mean. definitions, as somebody who works in charity and is a female, <laughs> that's kind of a bummer. Yeah, <laughs> for me, well, I mean, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but you know, yeah, well, seven tenths of the nonprofit workforce is female. You know, it it, it mirrors the fact that uh, roughly seven tenths of the people sitting in the Puritan church pews being told that they were going to go to hell if they didn't help the poor were also women, you know. And tell so t- tell folks about I mean, you were you were really so, I mean, I, you know, first heard of you before in the book or anything about the AIDS rides, and, and uh, I actually never did yours, but I've done the smaller one since yours uh, by another much, much smaller one out of New, out of New York here. Um, so walk us through when you kind of folded up the tent, as it were, for the AIDS ride. Uh, well, we uh, were we our company was essentially destroyed in 2002. Uh, it was our most successful year ever. Um, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think we I think we raised something like 100 and 
$170 million that year. Um, and uh, we, the, the Breast Cancer Three-Day Program was our largest program. And um, we did it every year with Avon, and they called us that year and said they didn't want to do the three days anymore. And I immediately thought they were going to compete, but they didn't say anything about that. So we began to uh, look for another partner since we owned the Breast Cancer Three-Day Program, and we found another partner, and we um, uh, did four months of due diligence on both sides, and we were ready to sign an agreement to do I think it was 15 breast cancer three days the next year with this new partner. And then on, I think it was August 11th, 2002, uh, just before we were going to sign the new agreement, Avon ran full-page ads all over the nation stating that they were indeed going to do their own multi-day uh, walk for breast cancer. And our new partner pulled out, worried that the two events were going to go head-to-head and cannibalize one another. And um, as a result, we went out of business uh, very quickly in the next week, and um, we laid off 400 people and shut down uh, a magical enterprise that really was poised to do the most amazing things in the world, and there had never been anything like it, kind of a, a, a burgeoning Disney of meaning, you know, a, a brand that was um, sophisticated and um, had its sights set on making civic engagement as ubiquitous in the culture as, as, as Disney made, you know, going to Disneyland, really. So we subsequently sued Avon for a breach of contract, and we won on the breach of contract claim after a three-year arbitration. But, but uh, you were already you were done by then. Yeah, yeah, we were done by then, yeah. But uh, there are more interesting things to talk about than that, so let's not dwell well, on when that. You- Dan, <clears throat> when you decided that you really wanted to take action for the AIDS movement, did you think to go to AMFAR and say, how can I help you? Or did it just like you didn't even want to bother and you said, I can do this better my way? Um, well, we did go to a, a, a charity, not AMFAR, but we went to the Los Angeles Gay and Lesbian Community Services Center and said, we have this great idea and we'd like to produce it on your behalf. and. Uh, and then, you know, as we spread the AIDS rides around the country, we would go to local charities, the Fenway Community Health Center in Boston, the Lesbian and Gay uh, Center in New York. Um, so, you know, it was uh, there, I, there were dozens and dozens of AIDS charities that we worked with on the AIDS rides. So, uh, you know, we, we weren't creating any new charity. So has this experience with, uh, you know, the sort of disenfranchisement and, um, you know, is that what, what gave you the impetus to reconsider the basic philosophies of fundraising and, and cause giving in this country? What, what was the spark, if you had one, that, that, that I need to write this book on charitable, how restraints on nonprofits undermine their potential? Yeah, you know, it began from the earliest years, uh, from the very first AIDS ride. We, it was magical. I mean, there was... a day coming into the bank account of the charity that we were working with. It used to take us a year to get them a $25,000 grant. I mean, this was amazing. And we did the first event. We had 478 riders. We netted $1,013,000, which was huge for us on that first event. And we expected to net $600,000. And, you know, we were all elated. The charity was, the riders were, we were. And then the media started saying, yeah, but what percentage went 
to the cause. And, and, and it was my first experience with a sensational media that had to find something negative, had to find something negative about something that was unbelievably positive. And, and so as we began to grow, grow, you know, the more we did the things that business has uh, carte blanche to do, the more we would get criticized so that if we would run a you know, $50,000 full-page ad in the New York Times, people would say, oh, that's outrageous that they spend all this money on marketing. That money should have gone to people with AIDS. Well, you know, that $50,000 ad brought in 2,000 phone calls, and 1,000 of those people registered for the ride, and they raised, you know, $2,000 each. So that $50,000 ad produced $2 million in revenue. I mean, you want to talk about morality. It would have been immoral not to run that ad. Um, and, oh, your brochures are so, so slick, you know. Yeah, well, you know what? You get slick brochures from Armani and Pottery Barn and uh, and everybody else every day. You don't, you don't raise a ruckus about that. What, the, the starving, the, the, the people suffering from AIDS are supposed to um, be shown to you on Xerox goldenrod paper and, and fine suits from Armani can have beautiful quality paper that really bring out the, the detail of the thread, but, but we can't bring out the detail of, of a tear in somebody's eye. Um, so, you know, every everything that we did, I just saw over time, wow, there's this apartheid. We have two rule books. We have one for charity and we have one for the rest of the economic world. And we um, give, we put charity at an extreme disadvantage. We, we tell it, you should act more like business. We want charity to act more like business. Well, what we mean by that is we want it to be more efficient. In other words, we want to draw more blood from the stone. We want them to do more for less. Well, that's not how Apple becomes successful. You know, we... We, in the for-profit sector, we allow people to pay a competitive wage based on the value they produce pretty much without limit. But as you just heard, we don't like to see people make a lot of money in charity. In the for-profit sector, we let them advertise until the last dollar no longer produces a penny of value. But we don't like to see our donations spent on advertising in charity. So charity can't build the kind of market demand for causes the way Apple can build it for iPad. We let the for-profit sector take huge risks. You know, Paramount Pictures can make a $100 million movie that flops. We don't, we don't place any moral judgment on them. But God help you if you run a $5 million community fundraiser that doesn't produce a 70% return in the first 12 months. You know, the attorney general wants to investigate you. So that Well, I really, guess there's... Yeah, I'm sorry. So, I mean, anyway, my point, my point is here... You know, you, you can't use money to attract talent away from the for-profit sector. You can't advertise. You can't take the kinds of risks the for-profit sector can. You can't think in the long term, and you don't have a stock market. Well, you just put charity at the most extreme disadvantage to the for-profit sector and the rest of the economy, and then you wonder why we're not solving any social problems. Uh-huh. Do you think that there should be a, a, a salary cap for executive compensation or no? Well, no, I don't. But, you know, I think you need to step back. It's it's easy for everybody to get excited um, about the executive compensation uh, conversation, and, and, and it's easy to talk about Porsches or Jaguars driving down the yeah. street and, and penthouse suites and really sensationalize it. But I think we need to take 
a step back and say, are we solving any of the large problems in this world that we hope to solve in our lifetime? You know, and the answer is, on many fronts, no, we're not. I mean, 10 years ago, there were 824 million people malnourished in the world. Today, there are a billion people malnourished in the world. In 1997, uh, you know, 1.1 million adults and children died of AIDS in the world. Ten years later, despite the introduction of protease inhibitors, that number has doubled. You know, ten years ago, 43,000 American women died of breast cancer. Ten years later, that number hasn't changed very much. Last year, 41,000 American women died of breast cancer. Homelessness, I mean, poverty has remained stuck in the U.S. at 17% ever since we've been measuring it for decades. So at some point, you've got to ask yourself, is this whole system of deprivation and, and, the, and the whole system that Ken would defend in terms of salaries, is it working? And, and, you know, what do we want? Do we want to get on our high horse about not paying anybody a high salary? Or do we want to cure cancer someday? I, I and that's totally, what we really have to ask ourselves, yeah. you know? Well, the underlying psychology is the difference of the ask. You know, when you're going out and you're asking people for money, as opposed to, you know, a corporation that's even either a private company or something that, you know, folks have the option to buy to buy shares in, right? And that's sort of... Well, but in any event, people want to buy quality, right? And I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. saying start paying people a million dollars a year and they'll all of a sudden get smarter and more productive. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm yeah. saying is... A financial incentive is a tool, right? And if you can use it um, to attract um, more talented people and they can grow the organization, then rather than feel spiteful that you don't want to help pay somebody's salary, look at it as a, as a multiplication of your investment. Because if, you, you know, if, if there's a, a woman out there that wants $2 million a year, um, and she was earning $2 million in the for-profit sector, and she can uh, quadruple the size of a nonprofit organization, and my donation can go to her salary. I say, I want my donation to go to her salary. She's going to quadruple my donation. Instead of looking at it in this twisted way where she's somehow taking money away from the cause, she's not taking money away from the cause if she's worth her uh, salary and if and if she's... Uh, increasing the size of the organization. Um, right. You know, so, this notion, I mean, Ken would say, oh, we're fine with $150,000. Oh, please, come into the real world. Um, uh, you know, $150,000, do you, do you know that, you know, the median compensation for a Stanford MBA 10 years out of business school at the age of 38 is $400,000? Um, you know, let's get in the real world and, 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 and Yes, you don't have to be entirely motivated by money, but some people have huge earning potential. And you can't ask them to sacrifice a million dollars a year or two million dollars a year that they could earn somewhere else for, for good value to go to work for a charity. They'll, you know what they'll say? They'll say, well, I can't do that, but I'll be happy to donate $100,000 a year to the charity. Okay, great. Well, now we just got screwed because we lost this person who's enormously talented and it's not because they didn't have love in their hearts. I mean, look at Warren Buffett, right? He's a, he, he, if anybody has extreme wealth, 
And then, look, he goes and gives half of it away to charity. Well, what I want is to get the Warren Buffetts of the world involved in these problems when they're 20 years old, and I want to keep them involved in these problems throughout their lifetime. So, and, and so long as they're producing value, why would we care how much money they're making? If, if they're worth it, you know, you wouldn't say, you wouldn't say, well, someone's produced a million-dollar fundraiser and they're getting paid $100,000. I'm fine with that. But I don't want that person to produce $10 million and be paid a million dollars. Well, why not? It's still the same percentage, right, 10% right. of what they produced, you know. So, so do you feel, and we we have to wrap soon, Dan, unfortunately, because again, we could we could keep you on here for hours to talk about this stuff. It's uh, fascinating. But so, but ultimately, do you feel that there's any difference from a business perspective as to how for-profit and non-profit organizations should be run? Uh, well, there's the tax issue, but I right. uh, but otherwise, you know, I really don't think so, honestly. The daily you know, operations. Controversial, but. No, you know, uh, we've created these t- these two different sets of rule books, and why? Why would you have one set of rules for, for putting a computer on everybody's desk and then a completely different set of rules for putting a plate of food on everybody's table? But why would you switch up the incentives? In fact, if, if, if it's money and financial incentive that help put a computer on everybody's desk, why on earth would you strip that away from the suffering in this world and take away one of the most powerful incentives available to humanity. Yes, there's the human heart, but we're now seeing the limits of the human heart. These problems are not getting solved. And at some point, we've got to ask ourselves, you know, the the AA uh, aphorism, you know, to keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is insanity. And frankly, the starving children of the world and kids with cancer and everybody else with cancer cannot afford the luxury of our insanity anymore. Dan, a real quick yes or no question. I don't want to you know, take such an incredibly complicated uh, philosophical debate and, and you know, downsize it to one simple yes or no. But do you think there will ever become a time where we will not be motivated by financial gain and just for the general good of society? Uh, I do. I do, but that's you're talking about a highly enlightened society, and we're probably many tens, if not hundreds, of generations away from that. And in the meantime, you know the way you get to that society is you beat capitalism at its own game, and you and 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 you promote love, which is what that is, by the use of capitalism. Well said. That's a good note to end on. All right. Well, Dan, again, it's great to have you. Wish we had more time. Uh, the What's book- the website for the book? Uncharitable.net. There you go. Uncharitable.net. How restraints on nonprofits undermine their potential. Dan Pilata. Great to have you, Dan. Come back, we hope, in the future. And uh, Good luck with the book. Lo- Thanks so much, you about. guys. Thank you so much. Dan Thank Pilata, you. everybody. <laughs> Certainly a whole lot in that, uh, that conversation. We can go on for hours and hours. Got a ton more questions, but we'll have to bring them back. Yes, we'll definitely have to bring them back. Um, well, Ken. We're, we're, uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, this is a debate that will rage on and on and on. I would love nothing more than to make $2 million a year, but I haven't, uh, I was brought up with an ethical, you know, problem with doing that on the back of charity. This well, but my... if you raise $200 million, 
Would that right. be a bad thing to dance to dance point? Well, right. not your checkbook, people. No, but it's not like <laughs> honestly. If I earn two, I, I I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's just my personality. If mm-hmm. I earn two million dollars a year, I would give the majority of that away. Well, but, that's but good. You're you, not, you, you have like, that you right to. You didn't start I two Y three years ago to become a millionaire. No. No, of course not. No, you don't. You don't start a charity to become a millionaire. No. That's that's the, you know to dance. But like if let's say let's say for some reason and we can end on this. This is a, it's just a to be continued. Let's say the American Cancer Society comes to me tomorrow and says we want to reach out to the youth market. We want to hire you to head up the Young Adult American Cancer Society initiative. You'll be given you know seven hundred fifty thousand dollars a year executive compensation, a, a bonus package of this, blah blah blah. I, I wouldn't even know what to do with that amount of money. I'd give it back to I two Y. I'd be like, money. bye, Matt. <laughs> yeah, right. That's totally your choice, though. I mean, he's not saying thing, that he's. I mean, he, is you know, my personal you don't philosophy have, you on don't that? You don't have to take that money. No, but is is that my own personal ethics coming in? Or is that just the way I was brought up? That I don't think it's right. That there, if you're gonna make this much money, do you really need to? And wouldn't that extra money that you don't necessarily need to make money, which is my opinion, be better served actually helping people? Sure. Well, you can put it back into right. the organization, exactly. or give it to another organization. Or... Exactly. Yes. All right. Well, on that note, put it in the Kobe and Hannah trust fund. The Kobe and Hannah need to not go to community college trust fund. No, 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 no slight to community college. We love community. Yeah. We just lost more sponsors. Yeah. <laughs> happens, happens. We just every, lost the University happens of Phoenix. Happens every show. We're, we're keeping our track record going. Yes, exactly, exactly. All right. Well, folks, thanks again. Um, and speaking of not that, raising money. Yeah. Speaking of not raising money. All righty. Uh, now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, folks, that's tonight's show, our 154th, 154 broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer. I'd like to thank our in-studio guests, Singe Larson, Sherry Kaplan, Frank Toich of the Andrews Larson Toich Foundation, Aaron Eloise, and Kenny Kane, as always. Next week's show is Pink Nausea and the Pinkocalypse. That is October. Think before you pink. Our survivor spotlight, Aaron Eloise. I know her. And from Breast Cancer Action, Barbara Brenner, Kimberly Irish, and Angela Wall. A show not to be missed if you despise all things pink in October and the exploitation of breast cancer. If you've missed any of our previous shows, subscribe to the iTunes podcast and download them all at iTunes.i2y.com or check out the archives at stupidcancershow.com. Remember, folks, if it's not stupid, it's not cancer. We'll see you all back here next week live from the chemo deck. Jack Buffard, Lisa Bernhardt, Amanda Freeman, Captain Stimmy and I wish you all a great week. Go to Moses Lindsay. Get busy living.